Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where the two of us team up and tell each other history stories that we hope to hell the other one's never heard before, and sometimes we get it right. I'm Teresa. I'm Angie. This week, I'm really hoping you haven't heard my story before. Wow. Yeah. That's Power hitter. Say. I know, I right mean, out the gate like that. This one, my story, I already know you haven't heard it. You you Ooh. haven't heard at all. Um, okay. Is this is this like the Great Cheese War of fifty three? <laughs> is there a Cheese War of fifty three? Is there a? Cheese I don't know. There war? should be. There should be. Hold on. There's hold, not. please. I'm gonna go Google the Great Cheese War. I'm gonna leave I guarantee you if it happened in fifty three, that's just my great timing right there. I mean, I, yeah, I have no idea. Neither. Can't confirm. <laughs> Oh, I, I can't, I'm going to tell you something, but I can't show you because I have it. I don't have it here um, because I don't sit still well. And because I'm gearing up for knee surgery and I went from running seven miles every morning before I went to work or before I worked out and then did karate in the evenings, um, the sitting still bit hasn't been working out well for me. And so I've started embroidering a pair of canvas shoes for kiddo. Um. I just am wondering, like, can I send you a pair of my shoes, too? I mean, like, okay, I have at least a photo. Okay, so what I did, let me get in here and, and send it to you. I did at least, um, I, I asked her what her favorite Pokemon were, because we're in the Pokemon phase of life. And she said <laughs> that she likes um, Eevee and the evolutions of Eevee, and then okay. the evolutions of Pikachu. And so I just sent you the photo. Um I started doing out, and I have Espeon on the other shoe. And then I'm going to do like, basically I have stabbed myself countless times for her. Um, and then I realized that the size I bought because she's at the cusp of children's shoes and women's shoes. I bought thinking that I was getting the next size up. I bought the size she's currently in in the women's equivalent and so <laughs> i am now hurrying as quickly as i can to finish these to get them to her yeah i know i know the the shoe size feeling it's a real real thing in our house i i bet two growing boys there was a a time and i just have to say i'm so thankful that we're out of this phase there was a time where ethan was getting new shoes every two weeks either because he was running through them like just destroying them or because by the time he actually like got situated with the shoe you know it was like comfortable he broke it in it'd be too small for him i'm not kidding when i say like every two to three weeks it was uh, insane so piggybacking off of that right because i went through a period where i was going through shoes so quickly and we i wasn't allowed to have name brand shoes because my family couldn't conceive spending 80 to 100 and some odd dollars yeah and, Ethan and you can commiserate right and so it's <laughs> like i learned to buy the cheap shoe and i learned to um always make sure i had a thumb room to grow so here i am in my late or, or mid 20s Wondering why my sneakers curl up like I'm an elf. <laughs> because you bought the shoe that's just a hair too big. Because here I am thinking, you know, acting like I'm still going to grow into my feet, even though I stopped growing years ago. Yep. Yeah. Ethan once said to me, I think he was probably like 10. And he was like, Mom, 
why does Owen get the expensive shoes, but I have to pick shoes from like Payless or Walmart, you know, whatever. And I was like, but because I can't afford to drop a hundred bucks every two weeks. Like yeah. Yeah, a hundred bucks for him will last like a year and a half until they fall apart and it's time to upgrade anyhow. Right. Because first of all, Owen's feet grew so they grow so slow and he is meticulous about his shoes. So he never ran through the sole of a shoe before. Right. You know, like he never beat up on his shoes and his feet grew so slow that it didn't matter. But Ethan's like, mom, you, you buy him $80 shoes and he's six. Why can't I have $80 because shoes? Because I love I'll be him be more. here next week. <laughs> he's my favorite. <laughs> like, and this it. is why I can't have more than one child, because I would <laughs> say stuff like that and then go, what do you mean the therapist told you to say that? What? I yeah, love see, you guys equal. Where did this come from? They're both so different that I can genuinely say they are my favorite people. They are so funny and so different that each one is a is a favorite in a different capacity, like a different region, I guess. I once met a professor who had like six kids, right? All boys. And <laughs> he introduced one of them. And I knew he had like multiple children. He introduced one of them and he goes, this is my favorite son. I was like, you can't say that. And his son <laughs>, laughs and goes, he says that to about every single one of his children. It, whoever is standing closest to me is my favorite. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yep. And yep. that cracked me up. And I was just like, well, okay. All right. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll stop panicking. Like, I, I don't need to panic. Well, I guess you're okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you run your family, I guess. <laughs> it works really well for us. Ethan's my favorite redhead. Like, mm. I, I win in like, oh, you're my favorite redhead. Oh, and you're my favorite 11 year old. Like, this is perfect. <laughs> Checks out. Yeah, no, that's great. I want to hear your story. I went first okay. last week. I want to hear your story the first. Well, see, I never pay attention to who goes first. We should, but I, you know, whatever. Before um, we go, though, can I tell you something really cool that I acquired yesterday? Go on. So, yesterday was our 16th wedding anniversary. Congrats. You haven't killed him yet. Thank you. No, I, I did tell him, though, that if he there's only one way out now and it's death. And so he better start figuring out how to plot a great fake death because because, you know, I better get the insurance money. Mm. <laughs> Which has to be like, really good because it can't look like a suicide. Right. I was like, you have to make it look like it was a like a, you were diagnosed with a long illness that just ended very abruptly. Like, that's how it has to look, bud. And he was like, right, how? I'll, I'll how? get on that. How? <laughs> like... The long and the short of it, they mm, your math ain't math, then Angie. You can't. I, that's, have... I know that's not how it works. <laughs> so good luck for you, Ian, trying to figure that one out. <laughs> that's your only way out, bud. And but anyway, <laughs> I, I tell Mike that death is his only way out. I don't give him the option of faking his death. I'm like, look. Well, so initially I was like, hey, that's your only way out. Until I realized, um, the. I, I guess the effort and the skill that would have to go into faking one's own death, like I'd probably be impressed by that. You know, well, yeah, well done, well done. But if it was well done, you wouldn't know. You would just assume that that was the reality. I guess I'll always be wondering. Then, won't I? Wow. <laughs> okay. Did he fake his death? Unclear. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mm, little question mark right there forever. So anyway. All right. So anyhow, my story. Well, but I got to tell you this cool thing that I found. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'm sorry. This is yours. I, I just I think you'll know exactly what it is and you'll think it's as cool as I think it is. So there's a bookshop downtown that's like it's like a bar and an ice cream shop. And then they sell antique books in the bookshop because Tuolumne County can't have anything without a bar. Um. OK, first off, I'm loving the entire premise of everything so far. Right. OK, so I know what a cosmopolitan float. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's actually like a thing you could do there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we're like me- meandering through. It's been a while since we've been in and um we find this book that's like the tales of etiquette or whatever like modern etiquette it was written in the 50s and i almost bought it because it was like 7000 pages long and i was like how much etiquette do i not know i feel like i'm missing some stuff but anyway emily post would just beat me to death with the book i i genuinely believe that the author of this book would have felt flunked me from her class like right yeah. off the get but so ian's like further down the aisle and he's into more like classic literature at this point and he's picked up like um robin hood and some mark twain's and some great stuff when all of a sudden he hands me this like very plain covered book it's the tales of genji i have that book i am so freaking excited Oh, it's, like, it's a good book. It's the first. Um, like that we know of novel. Yeah. Like I saw that and I was like, Ian, I don't care how much this is. I have to have this. And he's like, I'm not sure you're going to be able to read it without destroying it. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I need to buy this. A hundred percent convinced that the um, a runner of the store, if you will, does in fact not know what she had in her store because she did not seem at all enthused by my purchase and i was like if you actually knew what this was ma'am you know to be fair she probably has a lot of books that nobody knows like she's like okay but that etiquette book was the first that <laughs> and it is actually worth this and i keep telling my boss that it's underpriced and i mean probably and to be honest like right it's we're gold we're a gold mining town and that's where like all that's usually what all the books like the historical books are on is mining and the cowboys of the west kind of thing right so she's probably like an expert in those i think next to mike's bed is a book on the history of tuolumne county from 18 something to and i'm just like okay yep it's it's a it's a thing it's a cool looking book but it's i mean not something I would ever have picked up or commissioned or paid somebody else to write. Like, but these are things. We, we have whole stores of them. <laughs> it's a weird little. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I want to hear your story. Tell me. I'm so okay. excited. So my story is what happens when you tell friends about the podcast you're doing and then they see a post on LinkedIn and, okay. And they're like, oh my gosh, Teresa, you need to see this. I'm like, need to see what? And I like look at the post and I had to actually like expand it because I'm like, hey, it is the story of the invisible billionaire, the man who paid a PR firm tons of money so that you would never know his name. I feel like you are doing him a disservice right now. <laughs> I can't wait to pee pee on his grave. 
by telling you all of these things. Hit me with it. I'm so excited. <laughs> with that intro, this is the story of Daniel Ludwig. Okay. All right. And my sources are um, a post on Kazan Today, how Daniel Ludwig, the an eighth grade dropout, became one of the world's wealthiest men. There are excerpts of his, of the book, The Invisible Billionaire, Daniel Ludwig by Jerry Shields. Okay. All right. And there were there were other things I read. I don't think I wrote down all of my sources because I was compulsively reading and flipping through articles and um it it's interesting, right? And so I'm I'm going to have a lot of like side commentary on this. <laughs> I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I'm assuming you've never heard of Daniel Ludwig, even though he's no. a billionaire. Uh, no, the the only Ludwig that I'm familiar with is Alexander Ludwig. The real life behind Bjorn Ironside and that adorable young man in Rush Hour, or not Rush Hour. What's the Will Smith movie with Martin Lawrence? Bad Boys? Bad Boys 3. Okay. <laughs> Glad I could so, assist with that. Thank you. That's the only Ludwig I know of. <laughs> because I suddenly was like, was there a movie the two of them were together? And I was like, I feel like I should know this. No, this Alexander Ludwig is actually a Canadian. Okay, that's fair. There you go. <laughs> now, the reason why, obviously, I told you that he paid, you know, Pierre Firm tons of money to make sure you didn't know about him, but he also ne- very rarely spoke to the media. So well, he was, checks. <laughs> I know, right? So he's born in 1897 in New Haven or South Haven, Michigan. Daniel's okay. parents separated when he was a boy and he went to live with his aunt and uncle. When he was nine okay. years old, nine, he started his first business. Wow. I am feeling really um, a little behind. There's a reason you and I aren't billionaires. And it's because we didn't start in the single digits. Oh, clearly. <laughs> Between that and our avocado toast, we've been... Oh, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah, we've been dealt a bad hand. <laughs> Daniel saved his money and spent $75 salvaging a sunken boat. At nine? At nine. Um, so Literal hero. He saw a boat, fell in love with this thing, and began compulsively saving the money so that he could buy this boat that everyone thought was a lost cause. And he's like, <gasps> no, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. So everyone's laughing at him. What? Is the boat full of cocaine? Yes, I'm asking for a reason. <laughs> There's so much passion behind this. I need to stop I'm what just... I'm doing and seek more understanding. I am asking because he's nine. He finds this boat. He's in love with it. And the very next thing I know is that he's a millionaire. So the obvious train of thought is something after he pulls out this boat and is like going Pablo to... Escobar and a <laughs> yeah. boatload of cocaine hippos. Yeah, that's exactly what I had like in my mind. Like nine-year-old him is cleaning his boat and he's so happy and he's gonna go take it out on the lake and he realizes there's something in the boat. And nine-year-old um... your nine-year-old yeah. comes up to you and goes, Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna do this thing. Okay, I found this thing. Okay, so we're gonna buy this boat. <laughs> well that's no, I didn't have that image. I had the image of him finding it after the fact and like oh. taking it to his dad. Like, hey, what's this, dad? <laughs> I found a bunch of these, you know, very tightly white white wrapped wrapped saran is the word wrapped. i was looking for saran wrapped bricks they don't fit quite like legos 
what do I do with these, Dad? Like, that's totally what I thought. Do I build anyway. a house or an empire? Empire. Go go big, babe. Go big. I know. Okay, so it didn't it didn't have cocaine. Oh, okay. Um, but <laughs> <Have> he, <gold. laughs> he... No, it was just a standard sunken boat. Just your okay. run-of-the-mill... Okay, all right, all right. Dilapidated, barely floated kind of deal. Um, the laughter stopped after this nine-year-old fixed up the boat and rented it out at a nice profit. That's even better than cocaine. <laughs> Boat that he fixed. Better than cocaine. There's your title right there. Okay. <laughs> He's always looking to find ways to make money, and he drops out of school after the eighth grade to concentrate on becoming successful. Something that he couldn't see himself, couldn't see happening in the classroom. Uh, well, you know, he's got, he's busy running in a shuttling empire with his boat. I mean, what would you do if Ethan, who's beyond eighth grade, says, Mother, I have found the plan for the rest of my life. I'm dropping out. I would tell him, uh, no, you're not, young man. You go back to school and you figure out how to do both of these things then. Good good luck for you, friend. Yeah. Okay. So, Because you need a backup plan just in case it fails. Yeah. So for the next several years, Daniel worked various jobs around the docks, learning the shipping business and how it worked while getting paid for it. So he also, so one of the things he was, one of the things he was also doing is he was fixing engines and boats and really learning how to do all of that okay and you know taking on side side clients and fixing their boats and doing all of that so he is he is really learning every part of a boat from shipping to the entire mechanical engine to how like all of it he's learning everything which is very interesting that he is so absorbed in this i love it at 19, he borrows $5,000 that is in part guaranteed by his father to buy a broken down old boat and he converts it into a barge. And soon he's hauling molasses and wood all over the U.S. Or sorry, the U.S. Great Lakes. What year is this? I mean, so he's born in 1897. So at 19. So okay. Like okay. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of the as soon as you said barge and molasses, I was like, oh, okay, so this wasn't like last week. No, this this was <laughs> when people cared more about molasses than they do today. And there is still molasses being sold. Molasses yeah. is still an industry. We have molasses at our house. You use we use it in barbecue sauce. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so it became very his his barging business became very profitable, and it taught Daniel a very valuable lesson that he used for the rest of his career. And it's something he termed as OPM or other people's money. Why spend yours when you can spend someone else's? Well, he wanted another barge so that he could haul more things, make more money, but he had no money to do that. So he goes to the bank. He said, look, I want to buy another boat. They, they said, okay, great. What's your collateral? He's like, I got nothing. Well, no boat for you, good sir. And he goes, ah, hold on. Um, it's this boat. And this boat will be hauling all of these goods. And I make this much per load. So how about you take all of the profits 
which is X dollars for every load with these things. These are the current contracts that you can currently see the business plan, how this plays out. And you get all of it till the boat's paid in full. And the bank went- Boat number two, right? Yeah. So boat number two is paid in full? Okay. Okay. And the bank went, oh, we like that. And so Daniel went great. Fantastic. I mean, it took him like a while to like work out the nuance on how to do this. And I don't believe this was the first bank he went to. I think he had to really work through his pitch. But okay. his his OPM, his other people's money, is what really got him, you know, working through this. So soon, Daniel ends up having a fleet of vessels that were purchased without money that he had to fork, and he's making money off of. And as soon as they are paid in full, now all of those profits go directly into his pockets. Brilliant. I mean, it's fantastic. I love this for him. I know. So despite all this amazing stuff that's going on, business moves in cycles. You know, there's a time to reap and a time to sow and all of those, you know, whatever. Okay. Eventually business is slow and Daniel still has to pay the interest on all the funds that he's borrowed. Suddenly this man, he's in his twenties, went from being a huge success to super close to going broke and he's mm -hmm. overwhelmed. Right. So he has, he has to come up with something to pay his bills and he's got to do it fast. And he did. He goes into the tanker business and these tank ships carry huge quality quantities of liquid, typically oil or chemicals that he borrowed and, you know, uses the funds to buy another tanker. And soon he's making money again. And with this leverage, okay. he's acquiring a fleet of tankers. And once again, he's making big money. And he's still running the molasses as well. Is that like we're, we're doing? I think he's now? shifting. I think he's shifting because he's realized that oil is more profitable than wooden molasses. Yeah, that checks. Okay. And every decision this man makes is on the bottom line. Yeah. That, okay. That's how you become a billionaire. Yeah. So the real turning point for him comes in 18 or 1936 during the Great Depression. It's a disastrous time for most business people. While others cut back, Daniel's deciding to expand. He goes directly to the oil companies and he gives them attractive terms to charter new tankers for him. And then he took those commitments to one of the U.S.'s largest lenders, Chemical Bank, and used those commitments as collateral and borrowed money on a grand scale to build the ships. Okay. So he's using the same idea and just making it bigger, making it bigger and making it bigger. I love this. I know. He's figured out a way to scale up in ways few others have. Using Chemical Bank's money and with the oil company customers' commitments, he had little risk and his firm grew and prospered. And by the end of World War II, Daniel owns the U.S.'s fifth biggest tanker fleet. Just one man. One man. Brilliant. He did Because you know the other four were like a conglomerate. Oh, yeah. And- Daniel didn't believe in having multiple people beside him. Like he didn't want to take investor money because then he would be beholden unto others. And right. he didn't think they had the smarts that he needed. Well, I mean, he's not probably not wrong. <laughs> no, he's like, look, I know what I'm doing. I have figured this out. Me and my eighth grade education. Got it. Like, I know what I need to do. Kick rocks. But when the war ended, many business people feared that the U.S. economy would collapse back into a depression. Daniel thought otherwise. 
And he's right, because rather than a depression, the U.S. and global economies exploded in size, and he was there with his ships to accommodate that growth. Brilliant. I know. And then Daniel had another bold idea. To operate more efficiently and to capture more of the businesses, he decides to build some of the biggest tankers the world has ever seen. Okay. And we're still just working out of the Great Lakes area? No, no, this is this is now bigger and be, and he's gotten so much bigger. He's got the fifth largest fleet. He's if he yeah, had, that's, you, know, yeah. you know what I mean? Like he is so bigger. And to do when he thinks about it, he thinks about how to do it efficiently. And so he expands to war ravaged Japan, something that few other business people did because labor was plentiful and cheap and they were just thankful to have the jobs. There you go. I mean, this is the, you look at everything, every, you know, big corporation or every company that outsources, this is why. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So Daniel built a new state-of-the-art shipyard and created what became as super tankers. Okay. And with those super tankers, Daniel redefined business and harnessed the enormous economic boom of the 1950s and 60s to become the world's wealthiest man. At his peak, he had 60 ships and employed more than 20,000 people. Cool. So this isn't, you, you know what I mean? And like one of the, the quotes from his book were saying things like, how come you never put like a grand piano on your ship? And he responds with a grand piano can't hold oil. So why would I ever do that? Very practical. Extremely practical. Like everything about him boils down to what makes money. Like he stripped these tankers down to the point where they were like the hull of the ship was thinner than industry standard because he recognized if he reduced all of that cost and all of that weight he could add more oil he could add more hauling capacity and make Did more that money. ever backfire on him with like accidents or anything like that not that i can tell okay all right he then invests in a variety of ventures from banking to hotels to mining to real estate with mixed results. So he diversified and, the you know, you diversify for reasons and some, some investments are great. Some investments are bad. That's why you don't put all your eggs in one basket. But in shipping, he did so well that in 1982, when, when Forbes magazine published its first Forbes 400 list of richest Americans, Daniel ranked number one. Mind you, you, he does one interview in his life and pays PR firms tons of money so that we never hear about him. In his personal life, go. oh, you were going to say something. No, I love it. I love that he's like, mm, so, okay, bye. <laughs> yeah. In his personal life, Daniel married his first wife, Gladys, in 1928 when he was 31 and she was 24. They divorce in 37 when a daughter, Patricia, is born in 36. Okay. Now, let me just tell you, Daniel never recognizes Patricia as his daughter. Oh, that is unfortunate for Patricia. Especially since we've already said he is the world's richest man. And in one of the things I've read, he was so convinced that Patricia was not his daughter that he saved a couple vials of his blood and said, in case this person ever comes back to claim that they are my heir, test it against this. 
Was he right? He was right. Oh, that sucks. Because as soon as he dies, she puts in a claim of inheritance. And lawyers are like, all right, let's uh, let's test that paternity. And, oh. she, you know, just in a bad Jerry Springer episode, you are not the father. Dang. That is okay. And that was she was born in the 30s. She was born in 36. I'm impressed. Like, this could, could you imagine brilliant. growing up, like thinking, I'm going to get that money. My dad is a jerk and I'm going to wait for he dies. And then I'm going to get that money and then find out your mom was wrong. I'm not going to say lied, but your mom was wrong. And he was right the whole time. He was right the whole time. You like, think? Wow. I, I would say still a jerk, you know, because like if men could, could carry children and receive the seed and, you know, if Mike turned up pregnant and I had suspicions, I never have, that maybe that wasn't <laughs> that mine. That he's turned up pregnant? <laughs> no, I've never had suspicions that he's turned up pregnant. I've never had suspicions that he was unfaithful. So on, on both counts. Gotcha. Just check it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's good to check in because there have been plenty of times where he's gone, have you peed on a stick recently? Should mm. you go pee on a stick? Mm-hmm. So I've never asked him to go pee on a stick. Um, but even still, yeah, I I would maybe out of a sense of obligation or possibility that that's my kid acknowledge and take care of. I mean, because here's the thing, like once once Daniel dies, he can't take it with him. So it's got to go somewhere. Maybe to the person whom you share, like the to the the progeny of the person you shared your first marriage with like so yeah okay but hold yeah. hold hold all of that because in they divorced in 37 and in 37 at 40 he married 40 year old ginger higgins a widow who already had three kids by a prior marriage i knew it okay so he okay. already had stuff lined up it seems like you you tip it well and maybe i'm being mean right maybe he was just like look i'm used to having the pot roast on the table at 6 I cannot be expected to run a house. I need someone. So it could be a very practical thing. I don't know. I feel like it's probably a little bit of both for him because if if they divorce in 37 and he's already re remarrying, you know, so soon, he probably already had his eye on her if he didn't didn't already have something else on. Her. You would think. Yeah, like <laughs> I I don't know. Like and there's so little we know like we're we we know we know as much as I'm telling you. We we know a bit more, but you know there's still a lot we don't know. Right now, him and Ginger remain married until Daniel dies in his New York City penthouse apartment at the age of 95 of heart failure in 92. That's so, crazy. All of that money in 71, he endowed the Ludwig Institute for Cancer Research in Switzerland and kept donating his money to it. Okay. Now, part of this could be that he was avoiding taxes and using these as huge write-offs. You know, like if, if his money is going to leave his hand either way, he might as well have control over where it goes. I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> okay. So the Ludwig Cancer Institute today has nine branches in North, South America, Europe, Australasia, and all of its affiliates. 
in many, it has all, or sorry, it has all of these in many nations and has provided over $1 billion to cancer research and to other cancer related projects. That's awesome. Which, you know, honestly, that, that is really neat. And one of the things he said, because when we were, when he talked about if he thought other people could do what he did, he said that he called what his ability to be profitable was having these great antennae to really suss out good business opportunities. He says, nearly everyone has these antennae. Most people just don't use them. He remarked in a long interview, the only interview he did, I spent my time putting projects together. In other words, he acts on his business ideas, whereas many people don't act on theirs. And that made the difference show off <laughs> i mean come on it, man but i to the point where at age nine he's like i got an idea i got a boat yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna boat. do this i'm gonna mow lawn so that i can buy myself a boat an old dilapidated it's crazy to think that like at the beginning of the story a nine-year-old cute little boy finds a boat and decides he needs to check it out of the mud. And at the end of the story, he's a bazillionaire with all of his money in a bank account in Switzerland. But the crazy part is, is he lived such a Spartan life. Like he, so he lived in a New York penthouse apartment at the end, but he was living in a middle income neighborhood. And most of his neighbors thought, eh, he's in finance somehow, but they didn't think he had as much money as they did. <laughs> like he didn't entertain lavishly. He drank in moderation, never smoked. If you went to a party at his house, it was, you know, kind of a potluck deal. Like he wasn't having it catered. He wasn't having the linen tablecloth. Like there no indications of extreme wealth. And what do we know what his wives thought about that? I mean, one wife divorced him. So I can't imagine. Well, I can't say divorced him. They got, you know, the first thing right. didn't work out i mean could you imagine it's like okay i really want this super nice thing we can afford it we could afford it a billion times over and it's just like no no the car still runs we don't need a new one it's like but this one has leather seats and an air conditioner i was just gonna say in an ac <laughs> my, my air conditioner at the moment is that that handle that i i roll down it's not even a button i, I want the button oh yeah, I'd be frustrated. So, I mean, like, I, mean, I get living a Spartan lifestyle and, like, definitely staying within your means. But, like, if you've got the means and you're perpetually you making the means. The richest person on earth. Like, yeah. And at this time, there he was up against other Greek fleet barons. Right. And they like, were like super generational flashy. wealth. Yeah. yeah. And he has many times more money than they do. And lives a very minimal lifestyle. Like I'm picturing like suburban America in the 50s. Yeah. Like um, the housewife with the, with the, you know, apron on delivering the meatloaf kind of thing. That's totally what I'm seeing. It's, I mean, it's fascinating when you think of it like that. I mean, and he just, everything about him was so like, I'm in it. He worked compulsively. That was that was his thing. He didn't have hobbies. His hobby was work. And he said as much. 
like I don't know I can't imagine why you would work so hard to not enjoy the profits of your labor of your labor you know what I mean because for him it was that was the excitement the excitement was the labor weirdo I agree I just realized one panel of my curtains is longer than the others I like three inches okay I'm gonna first of fixate all, on that I love you so much I saw your head turn and I'm like oh what's she looking at because I can obviously only see you know right you yeah I want to see what she's looking at and I'm like oh my god she's looking out the window no I'm looking <laughs> at the window because the curtains are pulled and I hate the curtains anyhow now I hate them more I'm gonna move my desk back so I have to look at them or just get different curtains eventually eventually but I'm not gonna do it now because I'm going to get, yeah I'm gonna take a page out of Daniel Ludwig's book and not buy them until I absolutely have to I have to buy the boys midnight cur like the blackout curtains because our neighbors installed a motion sensor light on the back half of their house which points directly into Owen's bedroom oh nice sometimes 11 p.m looks an awful lot like 9 a.m and see we invested in blackout curtains early because we value our sleep and if she gets sleep we do too um, we have them in our room because of the same reason. Um, as you know, I am not a morning person, but Ian is. And he wakes up very happy every morning and it thoroughly ticks me off. So he he put the um, blackout curtains so that he would hopefully sleep a little longer. Mm. So that, you know, happy wife, happy wife and all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do, do what you got to do. So what's your story? All right, you you want to hear my story? My story yeah, is, I'm ready for it. My story is just bananas. Like it makes me so happy. It's one of those kind of stories. Like I shouldn't be happy about it, but it makes me happy. Um. So my sources. I'm going to tell you my sources first. Are um an article on nationalinterest.org. Um. The <laughs> a time.com article the new york times and a very um azerbaycan24.com is going to be the source that i use the most because they had the most thorough telling of this story okay i've never heard of them before um but i can really get behind the amount of effort that was put into the research that this particular author used you any any titles or authors behind this? <clears throat> How a German businessman stole the newest U.S. Mis missile from Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm hearing a lot of paperwork and a lot of uh, butt puckering. I think you're right. Um, so the players involved are one, Josef Linowski who is uh, Polish, and he is an engineer. Are you ready for th these names? Every one of these names is 100% why I chose to do this story. <laughs> Are we going to have another machine gun? Wolf, Diehard Knopp, a Luftwaffe starfighter pilot. Hold, please. Let me, I'm getting comfy. You got Settling it. Settling into this. 
settling in. You got it. Okay, so Wolf who? Wolf Dieheart Knop. I think I'm saying that right. Or nope. Maybe it's Nope. I probably Nope because I'm assuming I'm it's K and O P P. Yep, P P E. Yeah. So I think it's Nope. He's a Luwafa uh, starfighter pilot. And Manfred Raminger, the ringleader. He was born December 15th of 1930. He is described as a German architect, playboy, race car enthusiast, horse lover, turned KGB agent. You know, with all of those things, of course he is a playboy. Like, you don't even need yeah, to Yeah, I guess I really need, that. I didn't need to say that, did I? It's implied. <laughs> like, every, as soon as you, you start checking all those boxes, it's like, let me guess. He loves the ladies. Yeah, and you know what's funny is I was going to say later in the story that like every single descriptor of him plays a part in this story, except for the whole Playboy part, which I thought was like, hmm, okay. Well, look, James Bond is an incredible spy with awesome gadgets and a swagger. So, of course, he is going to be scooping up the ladies in the private life. And the public, I get, you know? So I'm just assuming that we need to know that as color. So as we're going through all this, we need to know that after he clocks out, that's when he's. That's probably what he's up to. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to give you the short version of the backstory because it's very um, country convoluted, but long story short. Very what convoluted? <laughs> country convoluted. <laughs> country like, convoluted. Is that no, an actual no. term or is this something? It is, I just said it. I just, it is now. I just made it up. All right. Okay. So it's um, entered, it's entered the lexicon as of this moment. In fact, yes. You know how like they describe, like when people describe World War One and Two as like a bar fight um, and then of like my little brother and your little brother and everybody's cousin is a different country. Okay. It's like that. Like it's just all all convoluted but the long and short of it is that in, in 1958 the americans introduced the aim-9 sidewinder air-to-air infrared missile okay okay so it's like the newest best like top of the line everybody wants one they're they're waiting in line like you wait for your new apple phone like they're trying to get their hands on it. Um, countries are vying for. I, I when I read the articles, I almost got the Im- image in my mind that they were like purposely picking fights with allies, in hopes that they might acquire one through battle. Because like what these... you catch a water balloon and suddenly it's yours. <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually what the Soviets did. So at one point. Shortly after 1958, the Soviets get in an air battle with, um, oh, I'm 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 so sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the uh, the nation with which they were fighting. But long story short, they get hit with one, and the plane survives and is able to make it back to the Soviet airbase with the missile lodged in its fuselage. Wow. Right. So they reverse engineer it and they are all about it. This is so cool. We like we need all the things. But at the same time, the Americans are doing like, you know, they're making updates and they're making it better. They're making it stronger. They're making it faster. All the things. Right. Um, so <laughs> Russia decides or I guess 
excuse me, at this time, they're the Soviet. The USSR. Yeah. So they decide they would super love to get their hands on another one, like the newest variant of this Sidewinder missile. And so our friend Manfred enters the chat. He is an architect whose business has fallen on hard times. And instead of doing what like a normal human being would do to try and correct their. It wasn't really like from what I read, it wasn't that he was a poor business deal on his end. It was that as an architect, something that he had designed and had just finished construction like um like the ceiling fell through and the entire project had to be redone and that caused you know like his profits to just dwindle right um and i'm going to assume that also caused for further projects to be canceled because if you can't trust your architect to build a sound building why would you hire him so the literal ceiling freaking collapsed yeah um so so he does what any man would do, and he decides he's he's going to start selling stuff to the USSR. This unclear as to why that was his train of thought, but I mean, it it wasn't his first thing. We're we're probably being heavily reductionist at this point. I'm going to have to assume so because this is where the story takes off. Josef Lenowski, like I said, he's um is a Polish-born engineer who works for Raminger. He shows up at the Soviet embassy in Rome in 1966 to say that his firm, i.e. Raminger's architectural firm, can get anything for the Soviets which they could not legally buy. I'm suddenly reminded of the Pepsi Points deal where the guy (laughs) wanted the Harrier jet. (laughs) Yep, I love that story so much. It's one of my favorites. Um, I mean, probably not too far from that. So the Soviets like this idea, and they want to meet him. They want to meet Raminger himself, so they invite him to Moscow under the pretense of a horse exhibition. He says he can deliver, quote, missile equipment, but the Soviets have no clue what that actually means till Manfred gets back home in the West because, you know, mind you, the Berlin Wall is still... right in play here he gets back to the west and he sends a message saying that he'll send over the newest variant of the sidewinder so they let him go without hammering out specific contractual details that's what he says so this is imprecise (laughs) treaty language is what i'm hearing i I don't think you're wrong um the soviets (laughs) love this idea of course they want the new sidewinder so they invite him back for some consulting. My assumption is at this point they're inviting him back to plan how you're going to acquire a, a new missile for us. Right. Um, however, he politely declines. <laughs> and he shows up to the USSR a little while later after he has already acquired the missile. I mean, it's logical timing to come back. Right. Um, the Soviets take him to a nearby hotel and he begins to to tell the story of how he goes about doing it. And it is described as offensively simple. <laughs> so he just walks right he, in here, boys. I'm here to pick up that missile. 
we don't have you on our paperwork, but um, come this way. Check yeah, in. Uh, you know, it's it's, just... it's like the ladder protocol. You know, if you have a ladder, they'll just let you in kind of thing. Um, okay, I thought ladder protocol is going to be very different because if I told you, <laughs> side story, if I told you about the ladder law. No. Okay. So my sister's a klutz. Okay. I, I, okay. Like went down a slide in first grade and dislocated her hip and was the only person in Merced County to dislocate her hip outside of a car accident. Um, okay. That's, that's pretty an awesome thing to put on your resume. Uh, she broke her finger riding a bicycle when it, she crashed between handlebars. Um, like the list of, of injuries is intense. And like, what am I looking How How are you still alive? How? <laughs> okay. So she has great renown for her inability to stay healthy and uninjured. Stay uninjured because she stays healthy. She's got a good immune system. Um, it is so what a bad. Compliment. Yeah, it great is, immune system. <laughs> it's so bad that she called me at one point because she's a bee. She likes bees. Um, keeps bees, but is allergic to bees because have I mentioned she's accident prone? So I think she invites a lot of the chaos. Um, and she's talking about how these bees are swarming outside of that hive, and they're in the tree, and. She's just like, I, I wish I could just get them and scoop them up and put them in. I don't know anything about bees. I'm the worst person to talk to. Like, don't call me in a bee emergency. I have no knowledge. I'm going to have to Google that for sure. Yeah, I don't, I wouldn't know what to do either. And so I'm Googling. I was like, well, can't you just scoop them up and put them back? And she's like, I can't because of the ladder law. Okay, I I admit I don't know um, Idaho law. I have never heard of a ladder law. You're going to need to break this one down. She goes, it's not an Idaho law. It's a household law. I The ladder law states, I can't get on a ladder if, if my husband's not home. And I just kind of <laughs> went, right, hold please. <laughs> and then I was That's like, amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have a neighbor that could come over? Would that qualify as, you know, not like husband adjacent? Like, is it just have to be <laughs> husband specific or does it have to be like just another adult? Like someone that's not you. <laughs> right. Like, so that when you break your hip, you have someone there to help. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So when you said the, you said the, the, it was the ladder, the, ladder protocol. Ladder protocol. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, no. So th this implies that if you walk into a business with a ladder, people will just let you go about your business under the assumption you're supposed to be there, like wearing uh, like a high vis vest kind of thing. Like yeah. if you're wearing that, no one's going to assume you're not supposed to be there. I think it has that kind of feel to it. So he, Raminger recruits um, the, the pilot, the Luftwaffe pilot, um, Die Hard, nope who is wanting some cash he's he's a little hard up for the cash so Ramager's like I, I got just a job for you and his engineer Lenowski <clears throat> and they concoct this idea to simply steal the missile from the Newberg Air Base in Bavaria the pilot knows the security protocol and the alarm system very well and he is able to make a clay mold of the warehouse key Lewinsky, Lewinsky uses that to create a copy of the actual key. He then procures, and I love this part so much, an amateur burglar's kit. This is <laughs> like I have seen this movie. Yeah. This is Oceans 11, 12, and 13. And I'm just <laughs> like, 
this would <laughs> never happen. I, oh. mm. yeah. Okay. So in that kit, the amateur burglars kit, can you get it off Amazon? A- I, probably. <laughs> I'm sure you can, or the dark web version of Amazon. It includes a picklock, wire cutters, and pliers. While he's procuring these items, Ramager rents out an, a hydraulic lift and a hand truck, like a hand trolley. And they decide they're going to do this in the middle of autumn because autumn weather in Bavaria can be pretty sketchy. So they take advantage of the cover of fog on October 23rd. He uses the lift, Winsky, and Nope, and the trolley over a wall of barbed wire. Then they cut a hole in the chain link fence. Nope, Wait, disables the Can't you just cut alarm. a hole through the fence and go in like that? Why do you need to go? Oh, because I'm, I'm assuming first level of I'm, security is the brick wall and then you have the chain link on the inside well, you have the barbed wire fence and then my assumption is like so many feet later then you have just a classic chain link fence it, like if my understanding of air bases is anything i think that's how it works i mean i don't know because i i have i didn't say i wouldn't say snuck but i have gotten the red bull racer onto the lamore naval base okay so into the airplane hangars I would say that you have a keener understanding of a naval airbase than I do, because my only understanding is from attending air shows as a child. But I do remember barbed wire and chain link fences. Yeah, I mean those that that checks, those are huh? things. Yeah. Right? Okay. So, <clears throat> nope. Disables the alarm. Lewins- Lewinsky breaks into the warehouse. They carry the missile outside and one source says um i love this so much you're you're covering your face they will barrel it a ravenger's mercedes that's like waiting at the end of the tarmac i'm unclear about how the car gets in there i don't know if it was on like the other side of the fence and they had to like go through the fence that's why they cut the chain link hole like hole in the i'm unclear about that but okay but Okay, I have I have a very basic I know what I know about missiles from TV. So I am not to be trusted here. I am not the authority. I could not wear my ignorance more proudly. <laughs> With that said, I don't think missiles like being jostled. Perhaps I don't know. They get aggressive. I mean, I think they get aggressive once they've been armed. But until they've been armed, I think think you're okay because i mean if you think about like how they have to get in in position on the planes and stuff there has to be some account of like something like i don't know a gyroscope or something something that allows them to be moved without problems but you don't install the missile with a hammer like i have a feeling it's a yeah listen i don't know but nope knows and okay. So... Nope. Knows. <laughs> so they they will burrow the missile out through the back of Ramager's Mercedes, and he realizes, oh shoot, it's too big for my car. You know, I've done that honestly because the back seat of a Jetta is not as spacious as you would like, and you well, still fit have the whole to... Sidewinder missile in there with the groceries. Yeah, even with the seat down, and it's, oh, it opened up to the trunk, like. So he has it sticking out 
And he's got so a red he, flag at the end. He breaks the window. He wraps the missile in a carpet. And then he wraps it in a it. carpet like he's Cleopatra smuggling herself out. <laughs> yes. And like covers it with a blanket. And then, yes, he tacks on the little red ribbon so as to not alert anybody that he's driving around with something he shouldn't have but to um, alert other drivers on the road that the item in his vehicle is slightly bigger than his car, as you would if you were driving home from the lumber store. By the way, the best red flag I've ever seen outside of a vehicle, what do you do if you don't have a red red item or red piece of material? Oh, yeah. Lacy red bra hanging at the end of this. Flap it on the highway. And you can imagine <laughs> partner... Inside, in the passenger seat, head in her hands in shame. I love her here for it. All I have to say is when I read that he actually tacked the red flag onto it, like, it made me laugh so hard because I think of all the times that, like, stupid thieves get caught because they didn't, like, check their turn signals or their headlights. Yeah. Or they, they run the stop sign. Like, he legit thought it through. Okay, but that would mean he he either had to run around the hangar and find carpet, or he okay. had it. I think he came prepared to wrap the missile in the carpet. Probably not prepared to break his own window, but... I don't think he came prepared to break his own window, but I think that he intended to make it look like he was just bringing a carpet home from, from, the, from the store. Could you imagine the guys watching the Mercedes drive out and they're thinking, we didn't know there was a carpet in that bay. Is that where we keep the muscles? Ah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. It's, it checks out. Um, he he takes the missile home. He, this is my favorite part of the whole story. He takes the missile home. He dismantles it. He keeps the fuse for himself to deliver in hand to the Soviets. Right. And he ships it via airmail like you would your mother's birthday present. Now, every time, USSR. every time I, I put stuff in the post office, they're like, can you confirm that this is not any of the following? I, yeah, I haven't he went noticed. through the same protocol. Missile um, parts is never on the list, but I'm assuming it's encompassed in one of the other categories. He claimed they were car parts. Do you want to know how much it cost them to ship a missile? What year? From West Germany to the USSR uh, 1968. 68. I'm going to say the entire thing, 25 bucks. $79 and some change. Do you want to know what it is in today's money? Hmm. I'm going to say 350 $682. Okay. So I, I'm Which off. is still. That's quite so a savings. Cheap, right? So. I mean, he could have put it in a kennel and had it shipped and said, this is my puppy. Be kind to it. It's a large dog. It's a large breed. It's a large breed dog. It's going to sleep well it's throughout aggressive. this entire thing. You won't it, we see it. We tanked it. You're fine. Just leave the sheet over the box. As mail service operates today, it's so operated in the past, um, the package gets lost. So he shipped it all in one package? He didn't do multiple? Nope. <laughs> they lose the package. It takes a 10-day reroute to get where it's going after he throws a fit at the local post office and, like, demands to speak to the manager, all that jazz. 
they find his package and it then makes it to its destination. Could you imagine if you were the porch thief, the porch pirate, and you come home and you go, oh, uh, Margaret? <laughs> um, this How is do- not, it's not Amazon. I uh, need to bring this back. Um, I'm assuming the person who is receiving this is. Uh, they know. Uh, yeah, they're they're a bit more. I, I got to get this back. Put dinner on hold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he he shows up at the USSR with the fuse. They're delighted. They, you know, reward him handsomely for his work. He later goes on to steal radio equipment from, from them doing exactly pretty much the same way. He walks in and takes it and ships it to him. He's Eventually. a pilot, so I'm assuming he well, has that swagger. Well, he's not a pilot. He's the he's an architect. Oh, okay. But he's definitely got swagger. Definitely got swagger. Um, wait, but wasn't the Luftwaffe pilot the one who just walked in and stole it? The Luftwaffe pilot was the one who gave them the information on how to get there. Oh, and and was directly like him and the engineer went in while I'm assuming Ramager waited at the car to cover the missile and then dismantle it at home okay they all got paid for it um which i don't even know why that's worth mentioning but i mean of course they paid did. for it they, they either got paid for it or they were shot like well yeah okay so oh, he, did he, i <laughs> so we'll or shadow there. a little bit um he like i said he later goes on to steal radio equipment for them but he, they are he is eventually caught by eastern german counterintelligence this checks does it not all three of them are tried <clears throat> it said that um it was really their own fault they got caught nope the pilot was too free with his money while Lenowski went as far as to tell people in bars how badass he was they all basically received like slap on the hand sentences ramager and lewowski got four lewowski got four years and nope got away with three years and three months after he was released from prison ramager tried to resume ties with moscow and the ussr but um no one's really interested in using a agent that's been out and served a few years in prison right point right so um his cover's been blown. A little while later, he gets shot in a parking lot in Antwerp by unknowns. No one's entirely sure what happened. They It could have been revenge from the German security services, or more likely, he got involved with the mafia. And and that's how he, he met his end on... get you the date. He met his end in November of 1997. Fairly recently, I mean, all things considered. Yeah, there's there's pictures of him and his race cars and his horses and the missile. Um, he took photos of himself and that was dumb. Um, I don't think he took photos of himself and the missile. I what I mean to say is that like you can go and like look at all the stuff. Of, okay, about to say like the exploits. Yeah, you might as but, well do it. Hold a newspaper with the the current date <laughs> in the hanger. <laughs> yep. Um, the whole story reminded me, um, I don't know if he knows, but I love Iron Man. 
Yeah, um, I, I thought I know. I, f- I figured so. I love the whole scene where he is leaving um, Stark Industries in his convertible with the blueprints like sticking out. The you know he's got the top down and it's sticking out the back like twenty feet. <laughs> Mm. It's not that far, but you know what I mean? Right. That is totally the image I have in my mind that this man had so much swag in him that he just drove his Mercedes down the street with a missile in the backseat. Like, meh, just going out for coffee. Okay, so ready for a random funny story about when I first damaged my knee? Yeah, It relates. It relates, <laughs> which is so brace for relevance. Um. So when I first destroyed my knee, literally 21 years ago, I was put in a brace called a knee immobilizer. It went from mid-thigh to calf. A knee immobilizer? Immobilizer. And it was designed for me not to have the capacity to bend my knee. Okay. And so, you know, uh, solid pieces on either side of the leg, lots of Velcro going all the way around, and it kept my knee basically straight. And so I have crutches as well. Um, Mike comes over and he, he was, he was going to take me to run errands and do some fun stuff before I moved away to college. And he shows up in his 82 Corvette that he has just rebuilt. I love this. And so (laughs) this two seater had very little room, right? Like it's not designed to hold a a lot of things. It is not a minivan. Yeah. There's not a ton of space. Like it's, it's comfy, but there's not a ton of space. And so it took quite a bit of finagling to get both crutches in there. And then when we got the crutches in, it was difficult. There was no space for, for me with the, the knee immobilizer. So the only (laughs) way I could go with him so he could take me on these things was for me to stick my leg out the passenger window. (laughs) So much swag. I love it. And he giggled the whole time and said, just be thankful this is the summer because this would be miserable in the rain. (laughs) Now, you guys weren't dating at this point yet, were you? No, no. We didn't date until like a decade later. Oh, my gosh. I love that. Yeah. That is so cute. (laughs) Your meat cute uh, is like possibly the best meat cute ever, but then followed up by that is even better. No, I mean, it's just our, the the beginnings of our relationship were founded in violence because I injured my leg kicking someone in the head. Well, well, I didn't injure him kicking in the head. I injured landing after the kick. He had a kick itself was great. Well, he told me I couldn't jump that high. You gotta, you gotta prove him wrong. Do you you know know that story on how I injured it? Okay, good. I'm delighted in that story. I mean, I'm sad that you're injured, and I'm I'm sad that here we are 21 years later, and we're still dealing with the ramifications of your actions, but... I'm almost done dealing with the ramifications. Like, I, I am light at the end of the tunnel. It finally gave out. It fin- I'm finally getting surgery. Although, in the words of my mother-in-law, she she's, like, listened to things I've coped with in the last two decades, and she's gone, you didn't think that having to put your knee back into place several times a year justified getting this fixed sooner no no because you know it goes out you pop it back in you put a brace on you wait for the swelling to go down and you're fine i don't have time for this mom yeah like look at you with your logic and nursing career i (laughs) oh that is mm, 
That is husband in a nutshell. Did you take any Tylenol? Nope. When I broke my hand <laughs> and didn't know it was broken, I came home from class and I, I'm in the freezer getting, you know, ice. What you doing? I'm getting ice. For what? Well, I, my hand hurts. You broke it. You haven't even looked at it yet. Don't you tell me it's broken. <sighs> Why do you know these things? Stop it. Yeah. And he's thinking, look, if you actually want to treat an injury, it is severe and you are under-treating it. Yeah. Yep. I hate that they're that smart. Well, the only thing <laughs> worse than a broken hand is telling my husband he was right. I know, it's a wounded pride. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. That sucks. I'm so sorry for you. Mm -hmm. Shall I send, do you need a card or something? Shall I send you a card? <laughs> no, the hand is healed. It's It's fine. It only it only <laughs> aches in the cold. It's fine. I only know when a storm is coming. It's right. Fine. <laughs> yeah. Totally good. We should wrap up because I'm hungry. Okay. Me too. All right. So there's rioting in my kitchen anyways. Rioting? It sounds like it. There's not a lot of food if there's rioting. So Godspeed. No, there's food. They're just arguing over who's doing what. At least that's what it sounds like. All right. Well. Dude, yeah. Okay, well, Angie's got to go break up a fight before things catch on fire. And on that <laughs> note, if you have enjoyed listening to us and you've got stories that you want to add to, or perhaps you know more about Blackjack Pershing or a previous story and you're thinking, good grief, boy, wait till they hear this, let us know. You can email us at unhinged.historypod at gmail.com and rate, review, and subscribe because those three things, though, those help us uh, meet more people and introduce things. And then we can be like, oh my goodness, seven people from South Africa listened to the last podcast. Holy Toledo. That's so cool. Yeah. True story, by the way. I love that for us. I know. <laughs> um, so on that note, goodbye. Bye.